From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we're recognizing women in the wine industry in support of Women's History Month. We went through our earlier episodes and found clips that highlight women in the industry. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. This time they dive deep into Chamberson. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back. Pour a glass and listen. In season one, we visited Hanover Park Vineyard. Amy Hilton tells us how they started and what inspired their love of wine. Well, it all started in 1996 after a honeymoon in the south of France. Michael and I were there almost a month. Um, by trade, we were both art teachers and artists. And we came home and we decided that we wanted to start a winery. At that time, there were 10 in the whole state of North Carolina. Our friends thought we were crazy. (laughs) And um, we would get in the car and just take a drive. We live in Winston-Salem and we would just drive west out 421. But we would find too much land, not enough land, too close to the river. Nothing was exactly right. And then one day, Michael went out driving to find a piece of property by himself, and it was pre-cell phone days, and he came home and said, I found it. And that changes everything. We recorded with Zimmerman Vineyards during our second season. Leslie Zimmerman talks to us about the evolution of her property from a homestead to a working vineyard. So Zimmerman Vineyards is a portion of... um, my homestead, which is 140 acres. And originally my ex-husband and I purchased the property um, originally in 1987 and married in 1988 and then started creating a little bit of home out of chaos. The property had been left destitute for six decades and little by little we resurrected an old house that was built in the 1800s, 1860s, to later house um, our family of seven um, that grew literally on the vineyard, um, on the property. Eventually, what happened as we continued to clear and clean, we started wondering what we could do with the property. And we looked at a multitude of different things like bed and breakfast or nurseries And um, we're trying to figure out a way to have the property work for us. And I always joke that you've got to be careful about what you wish for because now the property is working us. (laughs) And um, ultimately, it was a visit from a uh, babysitter that was working uh, on her degree in small fruit production And they had gone to one of the 11 vineyards, wineries at the time, West Bend Vineyard. And she came by afterwards and she goes, oh, my gosh, 
you guys really need to look into vineyards. You've got the right aspect. Um, it's exciting. I think you guys could do it. And that led us to discovering vines and vineyards in North Carolina. Our very first episode featured Jones Vondrell Vineyards and Winery. We asked Diana Jones how they ended up in Thurman, and she had a great story to share. So the thought of this took place over a lot of years. It's not something that we jumped into. When we, when we really, really got serious about doing this, um, before my sister and Raymond ever decided they were going to join us, um, Chuck started doing a lot of research. And, you know, we always wanted to come back to North Carolina. So, you know, we started studying the North Carolina wine industry, traveling, tasting wines around the state. And, you know, our goal, bottom line, is to make great wine. Great wine that is competitive nationally, internationally. Great wine that restaurants um, are proud to put on their menus. And so because of that goal, we decided we were going to, going to be in a state winery. We wanted as much control over the entire process as we could have. And because we were going to be in the state winery, knowing that only our fruit goes into our wines, the site was of maximum importance. As Dan says, you cannot make great wine if you don't start out with great fruit. And so Chuck started studying the area, you know, looking at all those aspects that together produce beautiful grapes, you know, a, a beautiful terroir for growing vinifera grapes, where we are 100% vinifera. And so we were looking for elevation and wind flow and rocky soils and south-facing and good drainage. And he narrowed it down to an area of about 3 by 15 miles from Devotion to Trap Hill. We looked a little bit over in the western part of the state, but after really traveling and doing a lot of research, we decided this was the area that we needed to look at. So um, did a lot of drive time. Our youngest went to Elon University and um, did a lot of drive time, um, looking at different places, tasting a lot of wine around the state. And um, we were up in this area and we got lost. And Easy to do in this place. That's right. State, we right? got, got lost. in Thurman. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a Dollar General then. No, there wasn't. So we turned on Old Railroad Grade, round the curves, and all of a sudden Chuck slammed on the brakes and said, look at that. And it was a pasture land, a long pasture land, rolling hills. There were cows on it, had a little red barn on it. And um, we sat there and talked and looked at it for a while. And he got back in the car and said, this is what we have to find. And so um, we drove a couple hundred yards down the road. And here's a little tiny for sign. When Carrie Hurt bought Round Peak Vineyards with her husband, Ken Goulian, it was already a fully functioning vineyard and winery. Carrie tells us what they were looking for when they made their decision. So when we came to um, North Carolina, um, what I particularly loved about North Carolina was number one that it was we were we were getting in at the um, the early stages of the wine business. You know, I, I don't think it really started ramping up until the late 1990s. And so when we bought the the winery in 2008, you know, there there still were just you know I think about 80 um, wineries in in the state. And it's grown significantly since then. Um, but I think one of the things that's really nice about North Carolina is that each winery has its own style, its own personality. Um, it, we are experimenting with different grapes. I think everybody's working really hard to produce some nice quality wines. Um, but it, it's kind of fun to be in at the ground floor of something that's really uh, taken off 
and is booming. And yet, like California, each one of the wineries or vineyards is different. It's not like you can go to one North Carolina winery and say, oh, there's North Carolina wine. That's, that's how it is. Each of us are different and unique. We have our um, specialties, our advantages, and um, I think it just sort of makes a great destination for people who are in the state to go out and visit. Quality fruit is the most important ingredient of quality wine. At Overmountain Vineyards, Sophia Lilly takes quality to the extreme. Here's more about her philosophy. So quality is the most important thing that we focus on. Um, as far as wine quality goes, you mentioned the sorting table. Um, we, it's, it's not just the sorting table. It's the sorting table, it's the sorting, um, it's the elevator, it's the destemmer. But it's not just the pieces of equipment. It's the, it's the people. Um, yeah. we're, we're not just sorting the grapes, trying to, you know, just get rid of the good and the bad. That's the whole purpose, but we're trying to make the best possible wine so that when you open it, you have an experience. You have a wild experience. This is great North Carolina wine. What we're striving to do here is to make the best possible wine that we can so that it reflects our state as the best wine that we can make. You know, I don't want to make wine out of a grape that's not going to reflect excellent quality because then that doesn't give North Carolina wine a good representation. Right. Our whole goal is to elevate North Carolina wine. And by sorting your grapes at harvest is just one way that you can really elevate North Carolina red wines. And that's one place I think North Carolina has so much potential in producing excellent white wines. Excellent white wines. Mm-hmm. Hands down. I know you agree with me on that. Red wines, we have a lot of work to do, a lot. And a lot of that has to do with what we're doing at Harvest, at Crush, at the Crush Pad during harvest. And that's sorting out the grapes. It's picking off any unripe stems, any any unripe berries, any, I hate to say it, any bugs. You got to get those out of there. You got You can't be making wine with stink bugs in it. You can't be making wine with leaves in it. You can't be making wine with unripe green stems in it because you'll start getting these vegetal off-putting red wines and if you guys could see that what we sort out of these grapes you would be appalled i am every time we do it every season i'm like oh my goodness i'm beside myself every time i take pictures every season because i'm just so stunned at the quality because when we finish when we finish picking out every single unripe berry every single unripe stem they look like perfect they look like blueberries so when we're done, you know, guests are standing around, and I'll never forget it. Sounds like Seamus is on something. It does. <laughs> Sounds like. Yeah. But I'll never forget a guest this past year. She asked me, are those blueberries? Are y'all making blueberry wine? And I said, no, ma'am, that's Merlot. An indicator of good quality wine is often seen at wine competitions. Kim Myers talks to us about how important they are, not only to Laurel Gray Vineyards, but to the state overall. Okay, so... We started in 2001 with our first grapes here, and people ask the question, another question comes up all the time here. So when was your first vintage? Yes. And I'm very, very reluctant to answer that question to folks because what happened here is not the standard. Generally, I tell people you need to have grapes in the ground at least five years before you think about bottling. So it would be a few years down the road before you would have your first vintage and then maybe even a few more before you want to think about entering a competition. That's not what we did. Um, 
we planted in 2001. Our first vintage was a small vintage, um, but it was really good grapes that came out of it. So we bottled it and we entered competitions with it and we actually had a 2002 Cabernet that won a gold medal. Oh, wow. So that's just crazy. That's crazy. Don't even repeat that. (laughs) And we're very selective about where we enter. Wine competitions are expensive. They are. Yes. That, you know, it can really add up. We do like to do uh, local competitions because I think that's important for the local Mm -hmm. um, people to know that we value the the local competition. Um, And then we'll do regional, some regional competitions too. And then we always do uh, a couple of international competitions (laughs) each year. That's awesome for you, but also awesome for the state. It's awesome for everybody. Because it just raises the level of uh, appreciation and what people feel about the, the wines coming from the state. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thank you for having us. So we had a great time last time talking about Cabernet Sauvignon. So what grape are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about Chamberson. Ooh, that's exciting. So Chamberson is one of the first ones that I think when Jesse and I started going to North Carolina wineries that we got really interested in because it was not one that we had been exposed to before, you know, at our tender 21 years of age. So it has a special place in my heart. But Chamberson, to talk about its origins, um, is a French hybrid grape. So we haven't talked about hybrids so much, but you can really get go down the rabbit hole when you're talking about hybrids. So we will stay high level right now. But basically, your, your goal of hybrids is to get the disease resistance of a native grape and mix it with more of the European taste. But Chamberson was developed in the 1950s in France, but it's been on the market since 1963. And it grows throughout the United States, throughout North Carolina, in France as well. A pretty robust grape, I, should, I will say that grows well lots of different places it's a very interesting backstory but yeah so that's the backstory on chamberson jesse's going to talk a little bit about how it does in the vineyard specifically in north carolina chamberson does really well it has large grapes and the clusters are also very large so you get a lot of juice out of just one cluster of grapes it's high yielding because it's a hybrid it has good resistance to different funguses in north carolina we are super susceptible to all the fungal diseases because we have such a high humidity so it really, it really does well here. One thing that's important with it in the vineyard is because the vine is so productive and there's so much vegetation with it, cluster thinning is often required, which is very sad to see, but it's important. So cluster thinning is where as the grapes start coming out on the vine, you actually remove some of them. And that's just so that the vine and the roots can push all their nutrients and, and everything that's needed and sugars and acids into a smaller amount of grapes so that they get what they need and it's not spread out and diminishing all the clusters. So cluster thinning is important. It has good cold hardiness. That's another important thing with hybrids is a lot of times hybrids are created for cold hardiness. So, you know, if you have a vine that you want, but you need it to grow in different areas, that's important. And with Chamberson, you know, it can, it's grown in Canada and more northern states too because of its cold hardiness. So, and it also has good resistance to downy and powdery mildew. It's very great for North Carolina. It's been, I think, we've seen it at a ton of wineries, and it's just easier to grow than some of your Vitis vinifera because it's a hybrid. And so, 
So it just, it helps round out the portfolio of a North Carolina winery to have a Chamberson. It provides some consistency because it's very reliable and you know that pretty much every year you're going to get an okay crop of Chamberson regardless of what the weather is. So I think that's why a lot of people plant it and that's why it's a a grape that certainly is um, rising in favor across the state. For sure. So how is Chamberson uh, in the winery and what kind of, maybe what kind of styles of wine might you see from Chamberson? So Chamberson's pretty versatile. It makes a dry red wine, but also because of some of the grape qualities, it's not quite as tannic as some of your, like your Cabernet or whatever. So it can also be made into a sweeter red wine or a rosé. There's just, there's a lot of variation you can, you can have with Chamberson. It has pretty high acid, but low tannin. So it's going to taste fruitier and um, oftentimes, well, I shouldn't say often, it's probably hit or miss, but um, Chamberson doesn't have to be barrel aged. So, you know, you can barrel age Chamberson, but you also can turn it around quicker and just let it be aged in the tank and not go through a barrel. So there is a lot of flexibility with with Chamberson in the winery as well. So Chamberson is a Tonturier grape, which is a French term. And it means that the pulp of the grape is actually red and not clear. So most red grapes even have a clear pulp. Um, but Chamberson, its pulp is a pinkish red rather than clear. So that's important because it can allow more color or, you know, you can do, you can treat it like a white wine and already have a rosé because that pulp is already pinkish red. So it also has more anthocyanins because they're in the pulp instead of just on the the grape skin. So it's fun. And tonturier is, in French means to dye or to stay. So makes sense. Yep. Yep. But Chamberson just makes a really good wine that can be made different ways, but typically it's just a steely kind of tart wine. It can be fruity, deep color because of that, all the anthocyanins there. So it's a good grape in the winery as well. Those acids mean that it pairs well with food too. So any recommendations on food pairing? Yes. When we were talking about this, um, well, Jesse suggested ahi tuna. That's Mm -hmm. one of her favorites. And I was thinking, I I don't think I've actually done this, but I thought it would pair nicely with a big, thick, cheeseburger but instead of regular cheese like a pimento cheese spread hmm. okay on yeah, there and that. some bacon yeah i don't know i thought that would be really good so i might have to do that this summer <laughs> and report back so yeah please and i think it pairs really well with pizza mm-hmm. uh anything with tomatoes i think that even that even though tomatoes are acidic i think for some reason that works together really well um and also, I think Chamberson pairs well with chocolate because it does have kind of a little spicy note. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it pairs nicely with that. Yeah. And I would say uh, it can go even with like really simple dishes, too. So like pintos and cornbread, it goes really well with pintos and cornbread. Um, a good Southern staple. And it's just mm-hmm. kind of incredibly. That's Jesse's wind- love language. Pintos and cornbread. And you can kind of think of it. I mean, I've heard of Chamberson being kind of likened to a Pinot Noir. So it's kind of a little bit lighter in, in profile, kind of a little bit more. It needs to be drawn out. So anything that you would maybe pair a Pinot with, you could try a Chamberson. So like a nice duck breast or something else like that, I think a Chamberson would probably go really well too. Yeah, that's a really good comparison. What else do we have about Chamberson? I think that might be it. Well, excellent. Once again, another great time. Jesse and Jessica, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you for having us. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, 
winemouths.com or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. There's more than just grapes that go in North Carolina wine. And Honey Girl Meadery, Diane Courier, brings her love of honey to life with an assortment of meats. So when I first got into mead making, I was just playing. Playing, try, try, trying different recipes, trying different fruits, looking things up on the internet. It was very early in the mead making movement, really. We're talking the early 1990s. The modern mead movement, I placed that closer to 2000 and moving forward. So really when I was first getting started, there was less information than there is now about um, fermenting with honey. It's very different, uh, and I like that challenge. Also, everything that I would learn about honeybees and honey um, just attracted me more and more and more. And when you think about it, you're making wine from from honey and the honeybees that goes back to billions of visits to billions of flowers you have so much to work with there that's just really um, magical it has an alchemy that's really exciting because honey itself is I could go on for a really long time just talking about honey it's amazing uh, what bees do we think of honey maybe as the thing we put on our toast in the morning and it's that straw-like color, uh, but if you have a chance to try other honeys, it is a huge range um, from that from that straw-like light-colored honey that we're so familiar with in our tea to really bold, dark honeys that are almost like molasses-like um, to very floral. There's even spicy honeys. Just it's very different experience and. We can't uh, get into that flower and gather that pollen and gather that nectar and make that only honeybees can. So I am just, if I sound in awe, it's because I'm in awe. Cider is another popular alternative to grapes. Patricia McRitchie of McRitchie Winery and Cider Works tells us about the many different types of apples that go into crafting the perfect cider blend. There's probably more apples in the world than there are grapes, and that for me was one of the important things about doing cider was that there were a lot of really interesting mountain-grown apples available to us in North Carolina that were um, just nice bases for a good, complex cider. And so we um, have sourced our apples locally from the Brushy Mountains or down outside Hendersonville. We've gone into Virginia a couple of times when things happen to the apple harvest in North Carolina, which just like grapes, the bad things happen. Mm -hmm. So um, we've used, we try to use interesting varietals, um, whatever we can get our hands on. We typically use a base of something like a stamen or um, uh, Arkansas black we've used. We've probably tried 30 or 40 different apples in our blends. Some work better than others, but we're always experimenting or seeing what you know seems to be interesting. And we've planted about 23 varietals on site. And the varieties that we have on site, um, we have a lot of Grimes Golden, which was the apple that Thomas Jefferson used. Um, it's grown in the kind of mid-Atlantic area, North Carolina, going south into North Carolina. And it's a good base apple, has all the right components for a good complex cider. And then we also have some 
um, crab apples. What I tried to do when I planted the orchard here was pick varieties that demonstrate all the different characteristics of a good cider, like bitter sharp and bitter sweet and all those different things to make a interesting cider. And for us, and for me especially, I'm always a little surprised when people wonder why we do cider too, because I've always thought of it as just a wine. It's made with apples, right. but it is a wine. It's a sparkling wine. So it's very natural to have cider, I think. And it's just, you know, an additional variety on our tasting sheet. And it's been a great use of a North Carolina product. Mm -hmm. And I mean, apples are awesome. They're just so interesting. So many flavors out there. And the fact that people are now planting more interesting apples and using more interesting apples is you know, really pretty exciting for the apple lovers out there, which I'm on the radio, but I'm raised my hand. Yes, I'm an apple lover. So I, I think it's great. You know, it's so I'm really mm -hmm. happy that we started with cider and that we still can make ciders and that the cider world has exploded. While owning a vineyard is often a lot of work, there's a lot of fun that goes into it too. At Dover Vineyards, Elizabeth Ann Dover likes to have fun in the vineyard and post about it on social media. All right, well, sticking with the animal theme though. Um, mm -hmm. You also often post pictures of taking your cats to the vineyard. So let's <laughs> yeah. talk about that for a moment. <laughs> oh, it's one of the joys of having a vineyard beside your house. And I had, I, at one point I had about uh, 18 cats. They enjoy going out into the vineyard with me, going on walks. Uh, we have this place that's beside my house on a little creek that, uh, I call it the beach and the cats love to go to the beach, but uh, frequently if we're going out to work in the vineyard, uh, the cats will join us out there and just hang out with us on our black plastic. Uh, that's what we use for weed control. They'll, they'll sit on the black plastic or they'll run up and down the rows and we'll do what we call zoomies or they'll just, <laughs> they'll sit in the, uh, in the, in the aisles or just hang out with us. Um, they all have their different territories. So some of the cats really like going to the vineyard. Others like going to the beach more. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, the, the workaholics like to go to go to the vineyard with us. <laughs> There's always something to learn when you own a winery and vineyard, and that really holds true if you're trying to farm organically. Pat Caldwell of Carolina Heritage Vineyard and Winery tells us how she learned to think like nature to solve problems in the vineyard. So we, yeah, we have all of those challenges. You know, we do have... Uh, pressures sometimes with insects and with with the humidity. Not all hybrids can be done with absolutely nothing. Um, insect Japanese beetles for a while. Oh my gosh, we had so many Japanese beetles, and we would we used a kale and clay substance called surround, which when you spray it on the vine, it kind of looks like a flocked Christmas tree. It's oh. all white. But it doesn't stop photosynthesis, and the insects don't like it, so it works. Well, the Japanese beetles are particularly a problem when the vines are real little because they eat all the leaves and then the vine would die. So we were using surround, and after a couple of years it was like, you know, there's got to be another way or there wouldn't be a leaf left on this planet, you know, with regard to Japanese beetles. So the thing that happens when you're organic is you learn to think like nature. Interesting. So you learn to ask the question, how does nature take care of Japanese beetles? 
And then you start noticing things like there are certain birds that have an appetite for Japanese beetles, like guinea fowl. So you get six little baby Keiths, and you raise them, and you have guineas, and they love Japanese beetles. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the bottom line of being organic, as you, as you do, you learn to think like nature. And, you know, you have all of the same problems um, as a non-organic farm, but you, instead of jumping for a chemical, you look for a natural alternative. The North Carolina Wine Growers Association is another great way for those in the industry to learn more about how to improve. Haley Klepsik of Pachoni Vineyards is the current vice president, and she tells us more about what the organization does. What's great about that organization is it's reaching out to people in the industry to, one, help them. You know, we are all in a time where the industry is growing. We're all trying new things. We're trying to figure out what the identity of the state is when it comes to wine, growing, producing, and marketing. What the Wine Growers does is it provides uh, educational resources to owners in the area. We put on a conference every year where we try to bring in experts from around the country, sometimes further internationally, to talk about different subjects in different areas Anywhere from business, marketing, uh, viticulture, and the enology aspect of it. So it is just helping to address issues that there may be in the vineyard or in the winery or how to promote a business or how to produce a brand, market a brand. And we're also working on different ways to give resources to people who want to get into the industry. So we have a lot of people who are just now entering this industry that want to know how to get started, where to start, whether they buy grapes, whether they plant grapes, that kind of thing. That's it for this episode of Park Talk. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. That helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more info at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free-run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.